Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Joining Mark are four other directors of We Hold These Truths. Chuck Carlson is the founder of We Hold These Truths and editor of Pharisee Watch and the Unheralded News. Travis Steele is the owner of Steele Engineering. Chuck McCollum is the owner of Oakshade Development and a self-described recovering dispensationalist. And Tom Compton is a retired sales engineer and your announcer. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In our Christ Followers Bible Study, we're going to be starting in the book of John. This should be a very, very interesting study. We have Mark Horton on the line with us to start our study tonight. And let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you again for allowing us to come together to study your word. We thank you for Mark and his preparation for our study here and the importance of studying your word and applying it to our lives. We thank you and we ask that you give us the wisdom and courage to apply these principles that we learn uh, in our daily lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening, Tom. It's good to be with you all this evening. We recently completed a study of the book of Hosea, and we saw one of the themes of that book was a promised regathering of all of God's people into a new temple in the last days. And as we consider the Gospel of John, I believe we'll be seeing uh, many, many more references to that same concept, although explained with perhaps different imagery, although we'll see some amazing similarities as well. I understand that when they find a tribe on some remote island in the Pacific or or some other isolated enclave, and they eventually are able to start translating the Bible into that language, the first book that is usually translated is the Gospel of John. And I believe I've seen at least one English edition of just the Gospel of John, which was being used as a handout on the streets of a big city. If you were forced to choose one book out of the Bible that you could keep, this might be it. <laughs> there, there's. It's certainly not a substitute for the complete Bible, but it has as much information about the gospel of Jesus Christ in it as any other book, and perhaps a little bit more. Before we study the book, I think uh, a few more preparatory remarks are in order. It has been the rage ever since at least the Schofield Bible came out 
in the early 1900s to assume that all of the books attributed to the Apostle John were written at a very late date, uh, and I mean 90. Some people even claim after 100, uh, when John would have been in his 90s or over 100 himself. And uh, this this has been just assumed without really any reevaluation, and the more so as dispensationalism and the, and the Schofield Reverence Bible have become more commonly used in the United States. But in actuality, the the actual evidence that any of these books were written that late is very scanty at best. We can recall from our study of the book of Daniel that the gift of prophecy was to end or be tied up at the end of the 70th week when all of God's work for redemption was going to be completed. The Messiah cut off the 69th week and then all everything else wrapped up in the 70th week. And we recall that our dispensational friends claim there has to be a, an indefinite thousands of years long gap between the 69th and the 70th week. And in our evaluation of that, we saw that there was no compelling reason in the Bible to assume that, uh, and that you would only do that if forced to, because it really does a great injustice to the plain sense of the text. Um, I found very little evidence uh, for dating the Gospel of John early, late, or whatever. Um, Everyone just assumes it was written late because Revelation was supposedly written late, and the epistles of John were supposedly written late. But uh, all of this really hinges to the testimony of a guy named Irenaeus, who was Bishop of Lyon, France. He was an early church father. He lived somewhere between the year 130 to the year 202. He wrote a book somewhere between year 180 to 190, in which he made the statement that the apocalypse was seen no such long time ago, but almost in our own generation at the end of the reign of Domitian. And this this quote from Irenaeus basically is the only evidence that the book of Revelation was written, you know, past the year 100 or, you know, at a very late time. And I have a book that goes into great detail on this, specifically as it replies to dating the book of Revelation. And I won't bore you with all of the history of it, but I would just sum it up by saying that Irenaeus is very confused on a lot of facts pertaining to the end of the first century. And to take him as as an absolute authority looks to me to be uh, wishfully thinking. Uh, and when we look at the internal evidence in the Revelation, the evidence is overwhelming that it was written prior to the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So when I look at that, when there are many other early writers who thought that all these books were written earlier. When we look at the lack of any historical evidence of any kind that would date the Gospel of John, 
you know, I have to kind of stick with Daniel saying that all prophecy would cease at the time that the holy people uh, were to be destroyed. And recall we said holy doesn't mean, like, sinless. It just means the specially set-apart people, the uh, Judean remnant of Israel. So uh, I believe it's important to assume that all of the Greek books of the Bible were written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem unless some compelling new evidence comes forth that can show that these books were written later. Now, that being said, it is fairly obvious to most scholars that the Gospel of John was written much later than the other Gospel accounts. All four of them, by the way, were published anonymously. None of them claim the name of the writer. Uh, the Apostle John is attributed oh, by, by at least the early 300s. Uh, this gospel is attributed to John. Probably there's some in the 200s that attribute to him, and all of the other ones are attributed to you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But, I mean, Luke is fairly obvious. The other three are kind of lost in the mist of time as to why it was attributed to them and there's scholarly disputation, pro and con, on on all of those writers. Uh, it's not really important to our study to state what, that John wrote it or that somebody else wrote it or so on. The, I did read an interesting paper a couple of years ago proposing Lazarus as the author of the Gospel of John, and it was worthy of consideration. But, again, I don't think it's real uh, critical to us. I did uh, note several parts of John that really tie right over to the Revelation and the exact same phraseology used in places. And in the prologue of John, we're going to see the whole story of Jesus told in two different ways right within the first 18 verses of the book. And it's interesting because Revelation is telling the same story of all things being tied up through the destruction of Jerusalem two ways. It goes through one set of images to tell the story, and then it starts over telling the story again with another set of images. So I found that kind of an interesting coincidence that in my mind would say that if the author of John and the author of Revelation is not the same person, they were very much in tune with each other mentally and spiritually. And, of course, that could be explained uh, other ways as well. Any thoughts or comments on my preparatory remarks thus far or anything relating to the Gospel of John? Without getting bogged down too much detail, I think listeners would like to know when the books were written. It's my understanding that as we open our Bible, that the order that we read them in is not the order they're written in. They were composed uh, in the order that they're put in the order that they're in sort of arbitrarily by some some editor at some time along the way, or, or by numerous editors, starting with Acts and then going on through Romans and so on. Uh, and then in the Gospels, believe that Luke was the first one to be written, followed by the others in some order, and with John maybe the last one. But they are listed in that order, I believe. Luke is listed first. Uh, can you give us some idea about... Uh, can you? be more enlightening than I am about the timing of these books. Well, the, the, the Gospels 
were apparently grouped in their present order in the second century or the yeah the second century there is one of the very earliest fragments of the new testament that is nearly the entire gospel of luke and then it has the first 15 chapters of john and fragments of the rest of john uh, in it so they apparently started circulating as a set of four in the order matthew mark luke and john uh, very early on the sequence of all the books of the bible follows more or less the classical Greek pattern of grouping an author's works with the longest work first and then the next longest all the way down to the shortest. And the prophets are pretty much grouped that way in the Hebrew Scripture from the longest one you know, to the shortest one. No, it's not absolute. Obadiah is the shortest one, and it's not at the end. It's mixed in there. But there are different uh, historical points in which we get a little fragment of somebody changing the sequence here and there for this reason or the other, but there's no you know, particular rhyme or reason to it. F. Lagarde uh, Smith, who was a professor for many years at Pepperdine, uh, published a chronological Bible in which he regrouped the whole Bible by date sequence, and that book made him a very wealthy person. <laughs> Uh, it sold like crazy because you can read the Bible from the beginning to the end in the order in which the events occurred and or the books were written. Uh, I, I don't have a copy of it, so I don't really know. But it's it's significantly different, and it does give you you know a different viewpoint on it. But we certainly the the chapter divisions were added uh, at some point. The verse divisions were added at another point later on. The sequence was changed even after the King James Bible was translated and published. I saw somebody about advertising. The Council of Nicaea. The, well, that was, yeah, 300. Yeah, they may have had something to do with the... Didn't they compile and decide what the books were? I, I would think they would have something to do with the yeah. order. Yeah, I don't... It's been a long time since I read any specific uh, things about what, what they did. I don't remember anything specifically about the sequence, but certainly they were disputing about the uh, divine origin of certain books versus other books. And there were many apocryphal gospels that appeared in the second century, the Gospel of Thomas and many others that were, uh, you know, thrown out before or at that, uh, the Council of Nicaea. So anyway, I probably didn't answer the question decisively. That would be uh, a whole study in and of itself, uh, tracing the how the Bible came to be in the exact form that we have it now. All right. The Gospel of John is kind of considered off by itself. The other three Gospels are known as the Synoptic Gospels, where they're condensing the life of Christ into a shorter narrative. John, apparently the author of John, had the benefit of seeing those completed works and telling the story of Christ in a whole different way and deliberately changing the sequence of some events not to deceive but in order to bring out certain points uh, better and specifically trying to show how every aspect of the law of Moses was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and surpassed I should say fulfilled and surpassed in Jesus Christ and symbolism is 
of paramount importance throughout this entire book are dispensational Christian Zionist uh, friends and relatives have been taught uh, the fundamentalist hermeneutic, and hermeneutic is a big word for how to interpret the Bible, but the fundamentalists, of which Cyrus Schofield was one, they came up with this idea that the Bible must be interpreted literally everywhere possible unless you're absolutely forced to admit that figurative language is being used. And there's other aspects. I think one of y'all brought out a few weeks ago how they also believe that any verse can stand alone uh, and still be the Word of God, even though rested completely out of context, which is an extremely dangerous thought, but that is not pertinent to our study at the moment. But the idea of using uh, literal interpretation really falls flat when we get into the Gospel of John here. And I'll uh, we'll wait till we get there to to start bringing bringing that out. With that, we can read part of the prologue here. Let's read uh, verses one through thirteen, please. The Gospel according to John, chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. All right, thank you. Any serious scholar that I could get a hold of has no doubt at all that this prologue to the Gospel of John is intentionally using the creation account from the book of Genesis as a pattern in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, in Genesis, we're talking about the beginning of the old creation, the old world. A key theme throughout the Gospel of John is going to be the new creation, the new age, the new world. Um, so we have another creation story that appears for us in this prologue. And and so it begins about, in the beginning, it talks about light. And then John the Baptist appears right in the middle of the narrative and how he related to the light and uh, a lot more about the light. And uh, uh, he came to his own, and they that were his own did not receive him. Now, who do you think that might be referring to? The Pharisees. 
Well, yeah, yeah, and interestingly enough, John doesn't use the term Pharisee very often. He uses the term Judean, but he, he uses it in three different senses. But one sense that he uses the word Judean basically is the Pharisees or the scribes and the Pharisees or the leadership in Jerusalem. But he just calls them the Judeans, and we'll, we'll see that as we get into the text. Some people have claimed that this, the Gospel of John is anti-Semitic. I know that comes as a shock <laughs> to uh, many of you listening here. But anyway, I'm just touching on a few high points here, because um, we're going to go back through it again. But uh, the culmination of the entire book is summed up here in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, who had been the children of God? Israelites. Yes. And and the Judeans never called themselves Judeans. They always called each other Israelites. They were the remnant of the Israelites, and they knew it, and they always addressed themselves as Israelite. Judean was what other people called them. And so there's a conflict here between the old order and the new order that's laid out clearly for us here in the first part of the prologue. But the theme of the book is the adoption of the Gentiles, or, or not, and, and the remnant of Judea, but that was a, the same picture that we saw in the book of Hosea. The two would become one in the last days. So we'll come back to that. But now let's jump ahead here and read now verses 14 through 18, please. Sure. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. All right, thank you. Now, we see the same story that we read in verses 1 through 13 repeated here in 14 through 18 in a more condensed form. But he goes, he starts over with the incarnation, the Word, and then here's John again in verse 15, and he was in the middle, he was in verse 6, John, John the Immerser, and then he talks about all the gifts that, that were then received through the only begotten Son, the one-of-a-kind Son, declared him. So the story is kind of told again twice in two different ways, and, and that's the very similar to the way the whole book of Revelation is written. Two different accounts, kind of starts over 
there in the middle and tell the story over in a different way. So I thought that was uh, interesting. But here with John being kind of in the middle of both of these, that's really interesting. He must have been a significant figure. Now, I don't know Greek, but the Greek scholars, when they lay this out and they look at kind of a meter or a a rhythm to the way the phrases are, and, and both parts of this, they end up laying out in six pieces. And both of these accounts are mirroring the creation account of Genesis. And uh, was it divided into periods? Does anyone remember the creation, creation story and uh, the the creation of Adam and Eve and the creation of the planets and the universe? Right. It was broken out by what? By days. Days. Yeah. How many days? Six. Six. The seventh. And what happened uh, on the seventh day? God rested God on rested. the Sabbath. Now, and we may have mentioned this before, but the week is the only unit of time that we have that is not based on astronomical phenomena. The year, we know, the Earth goes around the sun. The moon, the or the month is the moon going around the Earth. The day is the revolution of the Earth. But the week is completely arbitrary. Seven doesn't fit evenly into either the month or the year. So... Seven is a, is a very, very significant number to God, and we'll see that number show up over and again in the Gospel of John. But we have six days of creation in Genesis, and then we have six phrases of the new creation in the prologue of John. In Genesis, the seventh day is the Sabbath where God rested. In the Gospel of John, the whole rest of the book is the seventh. In order to the work, the work of Jesus Christ, the, re, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, becomes the seventh day of the new creation, which is kind of ironic because the, our friends, the Pharisees, had a certain problem with things happening on the Sabbath. Does anyone remember uh, anything they took exception to? Yes, Jesus doing miracles on the Sabbath. Yes, exactly. Healing. Healing, in specific, uh, specifically healing, and we're going to see that. We've we've studied it before in the book of Luke and in the book of Matthew, but we're going to see it now in John in a different way. But in when we see when you stand back and look at the big picture, all of Christ's work is becomes kind of the Sabbath. In other words, the first creation stopped at six. It was even though it was complete and perfect in one sense. It was incomplete in another sense. It all really looked forward to the the new creation. The the old age ended and a new age would begin. And this new creation was going to be even more perfect than the first creation. And so the the whole work of Jesus becomes the, more or less the, the seventh day, the Sabbath. So in, in one sense... All of Christ's work is on the Sabbath. And when he, when he does a healing on the Sabbath, that's going to be indicative of an even bigger picture that the, 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 all of the feasts, all of the Sabbaths of the Law of Moses, all looked forward to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And then, what comes after the Sabbath? After the Sabbath? Yeah. (laughs) 
it's a the little first bit of a day of the week again, I guess. Right, yeah, <laughs> the eighth day after, calendar. Yeah. That's right. After the seventh day becomes the eighth day, and the eighth day is the same as the first day. And what, does the first day have any significance to people today who claim to be Christians? You mean Sunday? Yes. That's uh, when we go to church and celebrate and worship God. That's the Christian Sabbath. Well, yeah, well, that yes, that's in some Reformed theology, uh, some branches of it. I called it the Christian Sabbath. But the Bible doesn't really refer to it that way. The Sabbath, the feast, everything, all ended at the end of the true Sabbath or seventh day, the work of Christ and the apostles, and they ended the old age. And so the eighth day a.k.a. the first day, symbolizes the dawning of an entire new age, which I would say without Sabbaths, but that you could discuss that for many, many hours. But, but in other words, the whole Sabbath was looking forward to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So the, the cause for it, uh, I hope to demonstrate as we go through the book, will have ended. And so they don't present the first day of the week as a new Sabbath, but but I know that's popular day. I don't want to uh, I don't want to denigrate anyone who believes that, but I believe there's a reason for distinguishing it because we're not just a rehash of the old with change. We didn't just change the old from one day to the next. We're in a completely different age, and I believe we can consistently see that thought coming in all of the Hebrew prophets and and then in all of the uh, Greek New Testament books. They all seem to be pointing that way. And the, the main gist of that is that our dispensational friends, by redating Revelation and the Gospel of John into you know, a much later period of history, the reign of Domitian, and disconnecting them from the annihilation of Judea in AD 70, they've completely confused the story and missed the whole point. Uh, Because this new age that Jesus brought in is magnificent beyond words, and the thought that it, it didn't happen the way God wanted it to, and that we don't know when it's going to happen, and that we're just kind of in a stopgap situation until it can happen. But when it does happen, it's going to be in literal Jerusalem, on the literal Temple Mount, and so on. Completely misses uh, the point of the Gospel of John. So that's what I hope we'll be seeing as we go through the book. The next time that we meet together to study this, I would like to go back through the prologue uh, verse by verse so that we can look at some of the incredible richness uh, that is there. But I just kind of want to do an overview first of it to kind of set the stage for the study of the book and to see how that it was laid out is trying to recall imagery from Genesis and from the Sabbath and from the Law of Moses and so on intentionally. And I believe we'll be able to see the reason for this and the wonderful pattern behind all this as we get into the rest of the book. Thoughts or questions? I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Very interesting uh, start. Well, very good. Well, thank you all for 
being with us tonight, and I look forward to the next time we can examine some of these things. Thank you, Mark, and it was an excellent start. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.